We got some life in the building. I like to remind us when there's children around church that a, uh, a church that is not crying is a church that is dying. And so we got lots of cries. It's because we're not a dying church. Um, so we praise God for our littles and families who braved the way to be here. Um, Gary also mentioned this is going to be a subdued service. That generally is a challenge for me, Gary, to be subdued. I shall do my, I shall do my best. I'm just kidding. Uh, early in my marriage, my wife and I were introduced to the five love languages. We've mentioned it a few times from the pulpit over the years. Uh, words of affirmation, physical touch, quality time, gift giving, acts of service. The kind of the main point of these being that generally people receive affection in one or two main ways, at least in healthy relationships, friendships, work relationships, marriages in particular. At the heart of the problem that this book addresses is the tendency for people in relationships to actually contribute that which is easy into the relationship as opposed to that which is necessary. So it might be easy for me to give my wife gifts as opposed to sitting down with screen-free time for an hour talking to her about her feelings, okay? There's a difference there. She may need quality time. It may be easy to do an act of service as opposed to affirming someone with words. And so this book addresses kind of the problems that arise in relationships because people in relationships have the tendency to contribute what is easy as opposed to what is necessary. And today, what we're gonna see in the Old Testament in the story of God's people, we actually see the same kind of thing in their relationship with God. Today, as we work our way to the cross from a different kind of angle than we're used to in Hebrews chapter 10, my hope is that what we see is that Jesus didn't just die to save us, though he did and that is amazing, but in saving us, he also died to change us too. That where there was death and darkness, he came to die that there might be light and life. That there might be renewal and transformation as we get to at the very end of our text today. To back up for a moment, we know that God created everything and it was good. And we know that at some point humanity rebelled against God and ruined it. And sin and brokenness invaded and permeated all aspects of the world, including our, including our physicality and our relationships and nature and the world. And we know that in moments both large and small throughout history, God has nonetheless pursued a relationship with that broken and rebellious people. And 1,500 years before Jesus, he did it with the law given through Moses, establishing a special relationship with a unique people. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to get at today as we work our way to the cross, what it meant and why. Hebrews chapter 10, if you're there, you can open up with me. I'm going to begin reading. It says, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers. Catch that word, perfect. We're talking about who we're becoming as a people. It can't perfect worshipers by the same sacrifices continually year after year. Otherwise, they wouldn't have stopped, they would have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Got to begin with a moment. Before we get to the cross, you got to start with a reason for the cross. And that begins, we need to get with the law. We've been going through Deuteronomy, if you're here with us on Sunday mornings, and the role of the law really as unfolded in the New Testament is, is threefold. One, the law was given to restrain evil. Do not murder. Seems like a fairly practical thing to pattern a society after in terms of justice. The Ten Commandments come to mind. Second, the law was given to teach us about God, about his holiness and his righteousness and how we are to be holy and righteous after him. And third, to point us to our need for a savior. Not just in awareness of sin and our need for that, but also with the sacrifices they had to do, pointing to an ultimate sacrifice that would eventually come. The law was to restrain evil, to teach about God, and to point to a need for a savior. We see that in the sacrificial system. Now what's interesting is God tells the people to make the sacrifice. We're not gonna go into details, but he tells the people all different kinds of sacrifices. And that makes the next couple verses really interesting. Because in verse five, he says this, and this is Jesus speaking through the Psalms, which is really neat. You can study that on your own time. But verse five, it says, therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Why would God, who told the people to make the sacrifices, who told the people to bring the animals, say, I don't desire it. I'm not pleased by this. I find no delight in these sacrifices. Why? Because the people were doing what was easy and not what was necessary. Jesus summarized the law in two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These people were making sacrifices, but they lacked love. They were bringing bulls and goats, but they didn't bring their hearts. And God didn't want a loveless sacrifice. Point number two, God didn't want a loveless sacrifice. What does he want? Well, he tells them over and over again in the Old Testament Isaiah 1, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. That's love. Hosea 6, he says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Check that. He's after their actions, but he's after their affections more. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah 6, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? The people could offer up a lamb without offering up their hearts. And God's will summed up in the entire Old Testament is love God with all that you are and love your neighbor at yourself. And they could bring their sacrifices. They could do it in front of other people. They could feel like they were checking their religious boxes off. They could feel like a good person because of the bull or goat or bird that they had given up. After all, it cost them something. But they gave their relationship what was easy, not what it needed. And we see similar things in our world. Let's just, let's just zoom out and think of our own world for a moment. Can you imagine a husband that mistreats his wife, but... At least he buys her roses, because that's what makes a good marriage. Can you imagine a parent that skips out on their kid's life, but heck, from time to time, at least they send a gift. 
Can you imagine a boss that is harsh and unfair? But you know what? Every few months, they'd give a thank you card. Now, I'm not docking on any of these things. Roses and gifts and thank you cards are great. But the problem in each of these scenarios is we're thinking about a person that does what is easy as opposed to what is necessary. Limiting a relationship to a few actions as opposed to affection. There's our problem. The people gave up their offerings, but God wanted their hearts. And in order for the relationship between God and his people to actually work, hearts had to be changed. We see that talked about in the Old Testament that one day hearts of stone will be turned to hearts of flesh. That the law will actually be written on people's hearts. That the hearts will be circumcised. That's the kind of language used throughout the Old Testament talking about the kind of heart change that would be necessary for a relationship with God to exist in the kind of intimacy that we were originally designed for. But it would require something drastic. What is the connection between the cross, which is what today is all about, and this transformation of the heart? Well, we finish our last four verses in Hebrews, our passage today. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. So whereas everyone else could not do God's will because their hearts were not for him, Jesus could. Verse eight, after he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, repeating what was said above. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. And here's our key verse, everybody. Here's our key verse. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Listen to this. Heart change came at a great, great cost. God knew that in order to change people's hearts, he would have to take up residence in their hearts. One of our speakers last summer said something, I absolutely love this. And in the Old Testament, God was for his people. Jesus was among his people and he came so that God could dwell within his people. And in order for heart change to happen, God would have to dwell and take the temple uh, to, to move from the physical temple to our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. But the problem is that the sinner, as we are in desperate need for our hearts of stone to turn to flesh, our problem as the sinner is that a perfectly holy God that is perfectly just cannot help but meet the sinful heart with wrath. Think about this, this is God's nature. He's bound by his nature, perfectly holy, perfectly just. And a perfectly holy and a perfectly just God meets sin with wrath. And in moments of grace and mercy in the Old Testament, it talks about how he's storing those things up but eventually it has to go somewhere. Eventually our wrath, the wrath of God had to go somewhere. It needed to be laid on someone. If God was gonna get into our hearts, if we were going to become his people and not just dwell among us, but within us, the wrath of our sin had to go somewhere and that somewhere would be a sacrifice. And that sacrifice would have to be fully human in order to be our perfect substitute. And that sacrifice would have to be fully God in order to be a sufficient substitute for everyone. 
And the price that sacrifice would pay would be great and it would be painful. It would be shameful. It would carry not only the wrath of man, but more importantly, it would bear the burden of the wrath of God. And 2,000 years ago, God took on flesh and the man known as Jesus Christ and he lived a perfect life. And he did amazing things. And we saw this video, which kind of brought me to tears in the back. The thought of of Jesus meeting the sick and them becoming whole again. Of people who felt the burden of shame feeling brought to life again. That that was the life that Jesus lived. And the people who took him as a threat to their power didn't like it. And so they took him. He was beaten. He was lashed. With nails, he was attached to a wooden cross to face what's one of the most gruesome methods of death contrived by humanity. I've given you pieces of wood today. And the reason I've given you a piece of rough cut wood, Sam Rathke chopped these up for us. The reason I did this is because what Jesus suffered for our sake, even in the details of the cross, You might feel the seat in front of you and feel how smooth it is. That's the kind of wood that we're surrounded by, unless you regularly work outdoors. But as Jesus is lashed back, faced up against the cross, and as he sunk time and time again, having to push against the the nails in his feet to grasp for air, the lashed back would have to rub up against, even in the details, the splintered cross. Up and down, up and down. Up and down. He bore a crown of thorns. And in addition to one of the most painful ways to find life's end, he endured the full wrath of God. Due for your sin and my sin. Here's the thing, church. We didn't have to do anything. We didn't have anything that we could do. Paul in Romans, citing Isaiah, says, no one does good, not even one. We had nothing to contribute. You and me were on the sidelines, helpless and broken, as he went into the game to win for us. We were sinners, but he came anyway. His people had rejected him, and he came anyway. His people had rebelled against him, and he came anyway. And I think about his moments on the cross in which he says, Father, forgive them for what they do. Forgive them for they know not what they do. How easily am I offended? How easily do I throw my own mini adult tantrum at my kids? How easily does someone cutting me off get me in a rage? How easily does someone in authority perhaps mistreating me or watching someone in authority mistreat others get me in a rage? How easy... And yet Jesus, who had more right to be more offended than anyone else in the history of humanity, the only perfect person who's ever lived, sits on the cross, and of the people who had done the worst possible evil in crucifying perfection, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, notice, it doesn't say, He showed his love for us that while we were trying to get our act together, that while we were trying to curse less, that while we were trying to cover up our tattoos really well, 
that when we were trying to beat that addiction, no, while you were in the darkest, deepest place, that in that moment still, Christ died for us, and in so doing, he showed his love. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and see, the new has come. This is what the end of our Hebrews passage means, church. When it says, by this will, we have been sanctified. That word sanctified, set apart, being, being, being set apart by God, being worked out by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctified, becoming holy over the course of a lifetime. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ for all time, once and for all. Meaning no other sacrifices are necessary. This doesn't mean we're perfect. He makes that clear a few verses later. But as the Spirit works out the newness in our hearts over time, what Jesus did with the cross is he removed the wrath barrier between God and us. So that when God looks at us as judge, he can declare us not guilty and righteous because we have the righteousness of Christ. That when God, that when we entrust our lives to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he actually gets to invade our hearts and set up camp within us because that is his temple changing and transforming us, changing our relationships working his way out as we continue to change and become people of light and love, living a life after him in this world. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means we don't have to bear the burden of the law anymore. Our call now is to love the Lord our God with all that we are and our neighbors as ourselves. And for those who trust in the Lord Jesus, who believe that he is who he says he is and he did what he came he said to do, God promises that with the Holy Spirit comes newness, comes change. Not perfection, but newness. And most importantly, and hear this most importantly, because people in this room, both Christian and not, are struggling, listen, that we no longer have to do it in our own strength. And we don't have to do it alone. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. Johnny, I'm gonna invite you back up. If you're new, maybe you've been around the church for a little while, and you hear what Jesus has done for you. And that kind of newness and that kind of change is something you're hungering for. Sometimes people have to hit the bottom before they allow someone to scoop them up. And maybe that's you. But wherever you're at, come find me, come find Gary, come talk to one of us. We'd love to talk with more about what Jesus has done for you to save you, that the Holy Spirit might take up residence within you and then might you, you might live the kind of life you were designed for, not just here on earth, but for eternity. Pray with me, church. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks that the law was given, that you had a purpose going back 3,500 years and showing your people that you would be pointing towards something far, far better. 
And God, today, I ask that you would impose upon our hearts a gratitude, a solemn, a somber, overwhelming gratitude that that was fulfilled perfectly in the person of Jesus. As we think about the cross, many of us in this room feel the burdens of our mistakes and our shame and our guilt. And Lord, I just, for a moment right now, wanna, wanna say, Lord, we, in our hearts, God, we confess that we need you, that we can't do this on our own. God, I don't wanna be a parent on my own. I don't wanna be a husband on my own. I don't wanna be a friend on my own. I don't wanna go to work. I don't wanna be here a pastor on my own. I'm constantly reminded of how much I, I, I lack and how much I need you. And so God, may we recognize our need for you and at the same time recognize your sufficiency. As we think about the cross, remind us of your sufficiency, God. As we leave here, remind us of your sufficiency, God of what you've done and of who you are. We love you. We praise you. We praise you now together. Amen.